welcome back to another episode of the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Serdan, improving well-being through innovation. My name is Natasha Cutmore and I'm a histopathology trainee. I'm joined again by this month's podcast guest, consultant forensic pathologist, Dr. Matt Seeker. In this episode, we will be talking to Matt about the case study that he has picked out for us. Welcome back, Matt. Hello again, Natasha. Nice to be back. Matt, could you please remind our audience what your job encompasses? So my job as a forensic pathologist is to examine the bodies of the deceased in cases where their death may be the result of the actions or inactions of another person. So it could be through an act of violence, but it could also include cases of neglect, health and safety breaches or something like a road traffic collision as well. So more diverse than what TV might lead us to believe. Please, could you give us a brief overview of the case you've selected and tell us why you've chosen this case in particular? Certainly. So this is a case of a 34-year-old male who was found deceased in his ground floor apartment. So he was found on the floor of the hall and he was naked from the waist up. There was some blood around his head and also over his chest and abdomen. And there was some smears of blood on the wall in the hall and drops of blood on the hall floor as well. Um, the front door of the address was closed, but it wasn't locked. And he was known to be an alcoholic and he also was known to use drugs. And there was evidence of both of these things at the scene. There were few items within the address um, and neighbours had heard banging coming from the property but they said that that wasn't unusual. Um, the reason I've chosen this case is because it presents a very difficult challenge in determining whether something is suspicious or non-suspicious even after you've done the post-mortem examination. How did you come across this case? So this case was called through to me by the police when I was um, on an on-call shift. Um, they were clearly concerned that somebody else had been in the address and had assaulted the deceased um, and they were worried about all of the blood that was present. Mm. And who else did you work with on this case? So it was very important in this case to have the assistance of the police um, and the investigation team in particular. Uh, I also needed the assistance of the crime scene experts, including the crime scene manager, to give me further information about what was found at the address. I also ended up engaging um, a specialist neuropathologist, so a doctor that examines brains. And I also had an input from a forensic biologist as well. So that's somebody who's an expert at looking at blood patterns. The blood samples in this case were sent to an expert toxicologist for analysis. Wow, so quite a diverse range of uh, people there. What other information did you have for this case? So before we start any forensic post-mortem, we're given a formal briefing. And during the briefing, we're given the material that the police have so far. And I'm also given the opportunity to ask the police further questions about things that I'm not sure of. So in this case, I was given a GP summary, so a summary of his GP record, which showed that he did indeed have a history of drug and alcohol misuse, but he also had depression as well. The paramedic documents, so the paramedics that attended the scene, were also provided to me. And they entered the scene and found that the deceased was cold and he had rigor mortis, so his muscles were stiff. 
So because of this, they didn't attempt to do any resuscitation because it was clear that he was unfortunately already dead. The ambulance crew then came out of the scene without touching anything else, and that's an important observation so that we know that nobody else has contaminated anything. The deceased was known to the police um, for previous offences related to drugs and alcohol, but there was no intelligence to suggest that he was at risk from anybody. At the time of the briefing, I was told that there was no CCTV available in the communal area of the flats where he lived, but there were possibly some cameras that were covering the main entrance from the street outside, but these had not yet been viewed, and this is quite a common situation when we do the post-mortem, we do not have all of the information. Um, and I was told that he was last seen alive by a neighbour around three days before his body was found and that there had been no activity on his mobile phone or bank cards for at least two days before the police attended his address. That's all very important information. How did you examine the body? So we start a forensic post-mortem with doing forensic sampling. So this is where we take samples from the body to try and identify offenders um, essentially that have been at the scene or have touched the deceased. And so the way that we do this is we take swabs um, for DNA from usually the main exposed areas, so things like the face, from the neck and from the hands. And we do try and avoid any blood staining. The reason for that is that we would pick up the deceased blood and then that would contaminate all of the analysis. Uh, we sometimes take fingernail clippings as well because if there has been some kind of uh, altercation where somebody's been struggling, they may well have got some DNA from that person under their fingernails at that time. We took uh, long-term toxicology samples, so we took head hair, which gives us an indication of the drugs that have been taken over a period of time before death, potentially many months, depending on how long the hair is. We then perform an external examination and we do this with extensive photography. So we have a police photographer who takes pictures of all of the injuries and all of the things that we point out. And the reason for this is that there is a permanent record of the examination. We can use that in court. And also it means if there is a second post-mortem, the pathologist that comes along and does the second post-mortem can see all of the things that I saw at the time that I did the examination. I noted on the external examination that the deceased was jaundiced, so his skin was yellow, and there was also yellow discoloration of his eyes, and that suggests that he has some degree of liver failure. His abdomen, so his tummy, was distended, so enlarged, and there was fluid inside the abdomen, and that could have been two things. It could have been ascites, which is a buildup of fluid that you get when you have liver failure, but the other possibility is that it could have been blood. And if it had been blood, then we would start thinking about whether he has received a blow, a kick or a punch or something to his abdomen. There were lacerations. So a laceration is a split in the skin related to a blunt force impact. And these were over both sides of his scalp, so both sides of his head. And there was also bruising over his right ear. There was some bruising to his upper arms but there was no bruising over his knuckles. Obviously, bruising over knuckles suggests that he may have been punching or fighting. There were lots of areas of bruising over his back, which was concerning. And there was also bruising to his lower limbs, but many of these bruises were of varying age. And by that, I mean some were fresh, but some were older, suggesting that they occurred at a period before death. There was no evidence of melina or coffee ground vomit, 
So by that, I mean when persons have alcoholic liver disease or chronically abuse alcohol, they're at risk of what's called a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. And that's where they basically bleed into their gut. And we can sometimes see that um, in melina, which is um, feces that is stained with blood, or coffee ground vomit, so that's altered blood that vomited. And there was no evidence of that in this case. I then performed an internal examination. And so this is where I make incisions in the head, in the torso, in the back of the body, and sometimes also in the limbs as well. And this is to look for internal injuries and to examine the, the organs. So on internal examination, I found that there was bruising over both sides of his scalp, so inside the tissues of his head, but there was no skull fracture, so there was no fracture to the skull. There was a low volume of subdural hemorrhage within the skull, so subdural hemorrhage is bleeding over the surface of the brain, and this was present in this case. There was no evidence of bruising in his face when I looked inside, and there were no fractures to his face, so no fractures to his cheekbones, for instance, or to his nose. We also look in detail at the neck and the voice box in the neck, because if there are fractures in the voice box, that suggests that somebody has had significant compression of their neck. And clearly, in this case, if there was neck compression, that would be highly suspicious. There was bruising confirmed over both sides of his back internally, and this extended into the muscles of the back. There was also bruising confirmed to both upper arms internally. I did find a lot of fluid in the abdomen, and that was ascites, so not blood. Again, related most likely to liver failure, and his liver was very fatty, consistent with alcoholic liver disease. I did find a small amount of blood in the left side of his chest, about 100 mil, and there were three rib fractures to the left side with some bruising. There was no underlying heart disease, but there was some emphysema. So emphysema is widening of the air spaces, and it's part of the diagnosis of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that some people may have heard of. And he did have evidence of this in his lungs. Wow, so that's quite an extensive examination, Matt, and um, particularly some of those bruises on the back um, and over the scalp sounded like they were quite deep, which as just a regular pathology trainee would definitely be very concerning if, if I found them. You've mentioned bruising of different ages when you examine the body. How can you tell how old a bruise is? So a bruise is a uh, area of injury to the body where you get bleeding under the skin surface due to ruptured blood vessels. Now over a period of time that blood becomes reabsorbed essentially. So what you get to begin with is you get a red, blue, purple colour when the bleeding occurs straight into the skin and then after a period of time cells come along and reabsorb that blood and the bruise changes colour. Unfortunately, it's not an exact science, so the only thing that we can really say about bruises is that if they are yellow or green, then they're over 18 hours before somebody died. So we would usually say that they weren't related to the incident that caused death, but that's as far as it goes. When you see on TV people saying that this bruise is exactly three days old, that's not real. What were your initial thoughts based on these examinations? So following the examinations, we had a debrief with the police um, and I essentially conveyed my concerns around the three separate areas of impact to the head. So if somebody falls over and bangs their head, you would expect to see it in one area. But in this case, we've got it on both sides of the head and we also have it to the ear. 
and you very rarely see bruising on an ear from a fall. There was also some bleeding around the brain as well, which was concerning, and possible bruising, uh, possible grip marks to the upper arms. So the bruising to the upper arms is in an area where you get kind of grip marks, so restraint marks potentially. The rib fractures were also concerning because that suggests that there's been an area of impact to the chest. And again, this is not often seen in simple falls. It's not impossible, but rarely seen. And we know in this case that he's not had any CPR, so he's not had resuscitation attempts. So there's no reason for him to have rib fractures. There was bruising over both sides of the back, which, as we've just discussed, is concerning in general because, again, you don't tend to injure your back when you fall. And there's no evidence that he's fallen down the stairs because he lives in a ground floor apartment. Clearly, he may have fallen outside, but in the actual address, there's, there's nothing for him to fall off from height to cause these kind of injuries. There was evidence of chronic alcohol abuse. So we have the jaundice, the ascites of so the fluid in the abdomen and the changes in the liver. And there is a chance that reduced liver function, so your liver is responsible for producing clotting factors, and when you have significant liver disease, you get enlargement of bruises and you bruise more easily, essentially. So it's possible that that may have contributed to the number of injuries that he had, but obviously it's still concerning because these injuries are in locations you wouldn't normally see following a fall. I withheld the cause of death, but I said to the police that it, this could be a combination of head injury. Uh, it could also be a result of liver failure. And there's a potential that it could also be a result of toxicology, such as alcohol intoxication or drug intoxication, for instance. So still keeping it wide open there. Um, did you do any further investigations to determine the cause of death? So the further investigations in this case were critical for determining the cause of death. So I took blood samples, urine samples. I also took stomach contents and I took samples of vitreous fluid. So that's fluid from the eyes. And all of these samples were sent for toxicology. And the toxicologist then looks at the samples and determines how much alcohol and if there are any drugs present. And if there are drugs present, what concentration those drugs are detected at. I took histology, so tissue to look at under the microscope including all of the major organs and I also took histology of the rib fractures to try and work out how old those rib fractures were. The brain and the dura, so the lining over the surface of the brain, was taken for neuropathology, so to ask the specialist brain doctor to look at this tissue. The uh, idea of taking these samples essentially was to, to establish the cause of death because at this point we still didn't really know what had happened to this man. Gosh, so quite extensive investigations beyond the already extensive examination that you've conducted yourself. Um, what did you learn from these additional tests, Matt? So the examination of the brain confirmed that there have been multiple episodes of previous head injury, which is not something that's uncommon in somebody who suffers from alcoholism because they do uh, fall quite frequently and bang their head, for instance. Um, the most recent episode was described as being mild in nature, which is uh, very telling for a situation where we're trying to decide if something is a murder or not. The histology of the organs confirmed that there was severe alcoholic liver disease, and I also confirmed the fact that there was emphysema, so airspace widening in the lungs. The 
rib fractures showed some hemorrhage, so some bleeding and some inflammation under the microscope, which suggests that they'd been sustained and then had been a period of survival. The toxicology was the most telling in this case. It demonstrated an alcohol concentration of 374 milligrams per deciliter. So to put that into some context, the drink drive limit in the UK is 80. So that's significantly uh, intoxicated with alcohol. And the lethal range is 350. So it's above the fatal range for alcohol toxicity. I also uh, asked the police to perform for the further inquiries and they essentially showed CCTV of the deceased returning to his address two days before his body was found and at that time he apparently had no visible injuries to his head but he did appear to be intoxicated so was stumbling when he went into the address. The CCTV was continued to be viewed and then essentially that showed other neighbours entering and leaving the address but no unknown persons were seen. I also received a report from a forensic biologist who attended the scene and he confirmed the blood staining seen at the scene could all be the results of the actions of the deceased. Wow okay so that's pretty comprehensive um, then as well um, and something that I'd like to say is that um, even in people who are known to be alcoholics the top range when you get into that the, the lethal range is the same whether you drink alcohol chronically or whether you're just a, a social casual drinker so that that top limit um, doesn't change uh, if you've got chronic alcohol abuse um, so Matt putting it all together what was the cause of death so overall in this case the cause of death was acute alcohol intoxication simply because the level of alcohol was greater than the lethal uh, concentration but I did state that the overall number and the distribution of the injuries is difficult to explain just from falling. But obviously in this case, we've got the results of the police investigation and of what the forensic biologist has said, which suggested that there was no one else involved in this case. But you can see how difficult it was to come to that conclusion. And without all those other extra pieces of information, I wouldn't have been able to say that. Mm, definitely. Um, and what did you learn from this case? So what I learned really was that, as I've just suggested, you need to take everything into context before you come up with a conclusion. So all of the findings from the post-mortem, all of the findings from the other investigations and all of the circumstances of the case need to be considered before you decide whether something is suspicious or not suspicious. In some cases, negatives are almost as important as positives. So in this case, we didn't have any evidence that his neck had been compressed, so any evidence of strangulation or anything, which is a, a positive in one way because it means that he's not been a victim of that kind of assault. Um, the circumstances of the case may also change, and that's something that I need to bear in mind when I'm doing these cases. So the information I'm provided with at the briefing may change at a later date and actually might influence the conclusions that I come to. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you would have done differently? I think one of the important things about doing my job is being able to discuss cases with other consultants. And I think in this case, it may have been helpful for me to have discussed this and shown the photographs to one of my senior colleagues. Um, it's the more cases you see, the more you learn about these kind of um, these kind of cases. And so I think it would have been really helpful actually to have some input from a senior colleague, maybe at an earlier point 
Mm-hmm. Um, and would you like to add anything else about this case or the conclusion? So alcohol and drug abuse is a, is a common thing seen in society nowadays. And unfortunately, many of these people end up dying in circumstances that appear suspicious. It can be very difficult because they're at risk of dying anyway from their alcohol abuse or their drug abuse. But they're also at significant risk of harm. So they're quite vulnerable people and they are often the victims of control and abuse by others. So it's always important to treat these cases potentially as suspicious until we've proven otherwise. Yep, and that's really wise words there, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing that case with us. Um, It was very interesting and you've provided a lot of insight into the role of the forensic pathologist. And with that, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. All the previous podcast episodes are available at www.rcpath.org forward slash pathology podcast. You can also follow the Royal College of Pathologists on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to find out about careers in pathology, including in forensic pathology, head over to www.rcpath.org forward slash careers. I'm Natasha Cutmore and you've been listening to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile, sponsored by Sir Dan.